When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener, and today it's the first anniversary of the attack on Charlie Hebdo in Paris, where 12 people were killed. It's also the publication date for the posthumous manifesto written by Charlie Hebdo's editor-in-chief, Sharb. He finished his manifesto two days before he was killed. It's called Open Letter on Blasphemy, Islamophobia, and the True Enemies of Free Expression. We'll talk about Sharb's manifesto and about Charlie Hebdo with Amy Wilentz, longtime contributing editor at The Nation, and Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker. He wrote the foreword to Sharb's manifesto. Also, Dolpo Radio. We'll be speaking with Rebecca Solnit about hiking in the remote Dolpo region of Nepal. She went there to help with a traveling medical clinic and to see what climate change looked like in the Himalayas. Now it's time to talk about Chicago, where the word is Ram must go. Maybe you heard the news. A Chicago cop named Jason Van Dyke has been charged with first-degree murder for shooting a 17-year-old black kid named Laquan McDonald 16 times at close range. Chicago's Mayor Rahm Emanuel, previously advisor to two Democratic presidents, uh, appears to have done everything in his power to prevent this case from reaching the courtroom. How did this guy, Rahm Emanuel, get to be so central in the Democratic Party over the last decades. For some answers, we turn to Rick Perlstein. He's author of the book Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. Before that, he published Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. That was a New York Times bestseller, picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by over a dozen publications. Rick has written for The Nation, The Village Voice, Rolling Stone, The New York Times, many others. And he wrote about Rahm last week for TheNewYorker.com. We reached him today in Chicago. Rick Perlstein, welcome. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, let's review the case of Laquan McDonald, killed in October 2014. That was a while ago. I don't remember hearing about Laquan McDonald in October 2014. Did I miss a big story everybody else knew about? Uh, I, there's the rub, uh, Professor Wiener. Uh, no one knew about it, of course, except for, of course, Laquan uh, McDonald's family. And uh, it was just one of these kind of many shootings that are kind of in the background. And uh, basically, um, a local activist heard about it, heard from his sources uh, that there was a video of a shooting, that it was horrific, made several Freedom of Information Act requests, publicized those Freedom of Information Act requests, uh, at which time uh, Chicagoans learned that the city had something to hide. And uh, it kind of became, it kind of slowly became a drumbeat uh, through this fall. And when uh, the judge finally ruled, uh, basically in uh, November, that the city had to release this tape, a couple of facts were known. Uh, one was that uh, the city of Chicago had authorized a $5 million payment 
to the kid's family uh, without the family ever having sued. So basically they paid them off uh, and the inference made was this must be really horrible that, you know, they got this $5 million payday without even having to ask for it, really. And uh, the other was that the speculation that this had been held back by uh, the mayor because we had our mayoral election in March of uh, 2015. And, uh, you know, if people had known about this because the video is absolutely horrifying. He's shot 16 times while basically staggering in the other direction. There's no way Rahm Emanuel would have been reelected. So basically things happened very fast after that. The judge said you had to release the video. And then our state's attorney uh, for the county, a woman named Anita Alvarez, who's also up for re-election, by the way, this uh, coming spring, announced an indictment of the cop almost immediately, you know, hours uh, before the release of the video. And this was obviously because they feared riots. The video came out. It was horrifying. And suddenly Rahm Emanuel was on the horns of an extraordinary political dilemma and uh, very soon after that, a poll was done that discovered that 51% of respondents thought he should, should resign as mayor, and his approval rating was down to 17%. Wow. So, Rahm Emanuel, the name is familiar not just from the Obama administration, but also from the, the Clinton years. Wasn't he one of the superstars of the Bill Clinton era? Very much so, and it started in the Clinton campaign. He was one of the first out-of-towners to go down to Little Rock and uh, join the Clinton effort when Clinton was very much this uh, outsider. And he distinguished himself as he had kind of within the councils of uh, Chicago politics where he had been high up in uh, Mayor Daley's uh, uh, city council, city hall, I mean, uh, as fundraising. This woman, this friend of mine, this great liberal activist named Reagan Burke, uh, was forced to uh, schedule Bill Clinton's trip back to Arkansas to execute Ricky Ray Rector, the uh, mentally retarded guy who famously asked for uh, to famously saved the piece of pie for his last last meal to eat later. She she confronted Rahm Emanuel and said, "Why are we doing this?" And Rahm Emanuel said, "Because the death penalty polls well." So he was always this uh, very venal. Uh, uh, kind of right-tending uh, uh, demagogue within the Democratic Party. And he just rose and rose and rose. Uh, within the Clinton administration, he was very much the point man in charge of passing NAFTA. He implored, as uh, new memos reveal, uh, Clinton to uh, outflank the Republicans on the right when it came to deporting what he called criminal aliens. Uh, he was in charge of the crime bill, which Bill Clinton apologized for. And then immediately after leaving the Clinton administration, he became an investment banker and made $18 million uh, in two years by uh, trading on his uh, White House contacts. And, uh, you know, we're only in the middle of the story and we're already kind of neck deep, aren't we? 2009, Barack Obama takes office. He names Rahm Emanuel as his White House chief of staff. That, that was a dark day for many of us who yeah. remembered Rahm from the Clinton years, especially those of us who thought of Obama as a guy who had been a community organizer on Chicago's South Side. Why right. did Obama go back to Rahm Emanuel? Because Rahm had this reputation as this can-do kind of guy. A guy who got things done, a guy who uh, knew where the bodies were buried, knew how to line up votes, knew how to count votes, and knew how to lean on people. So he's supposed to be this really tough guy. Of course, 
you know, what he really proved in the Obama administration was that he was not a tough guy at all, that he was a political coward. He was the guy who told Obama to basically back off on this whole health care deal and try to turn it into this micro initiative. And the only reason uh, Obama uh, insisted on going forward was that Nancy Pelosi uh, talked him into it. Uh, when I did this piece, writing the same stuff I've been writing about Rom for really uh, 10 years now, um, it became the most read article on the New Yorker website for three straight days. Wow. People are ready to hear this about him. When Rom left the Obama White House, he ran for mayor of Chicago. That was 2011. Uh, a lot of people voted for him. Who, who were they and, and why? Well, in Chicago, you can't win, win citywide office without a, a very strong majority of the black vote, whether you're Rahm Emanuel or uh, Richard Daley, first or second. And he overwhelmingly won the black vote because he was associated with Barack Obama. He won it again in 2015 very narrowly, basically having probably to do with the fact of the um, ethnic rivalries between uh, black Chicago and uh, Hispanic Chicago. His opponent, Chuy Garcia, was a Mexican-American. Of course, now he, his, his black support has diminished to the vanishing point. Where does Hillary stand in relation to Rom? Certainly she goes back 25 years with him. She's from Chicago. She needs his money. Uh, on the other hand, she needs black votes. Rom is right. political poison in black America right now. What about Hillary and Rom? You know, it's hard to say. You hear conflicting things. Uh, you know, I heard a story about, you know, back in the olden days in Arkansas that uh, he really uh, offended Hillary Clinton by his boorish behavior in the Clinton home, uh, you know, that, that he was never one of her favorites. But, you know, then again, uh, you know, these, he's kind of, you know, the well that they kept on going to to get these things done. Uh, so, you know, not too long ago uh, when we were in the middle of Laquan uh, McDonald uh, nastiness, uh, she did come out with some supportive words and say, you know, she was sure that Rahm was doing all he could to reform the police, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're kind of, uh, as, as, as analysts, we're kind of all on the fence about what's going on between Hillary Clinton and, and even between Bar- Barack Obama. You know, is this guy uh, politically anathema or uh, will he live to see another day? That's the suspense right now. The cry in Chicago now is Rom must go. How exactly might that happen? Well, we don't have a recall uh, provision, and uh, folks are going down to Spring- Springfield to legislate one. But he's got lots of friends in Springfield, and things are pretty wired down there. It's not exactly a hotbed of uh, Democratic, uh, small d Democratic activism. So that probably will go nowhere. He would have to uh, feel so weak in his mandate to govern the city that he would have to leave on his own. And he doesn't seem to be the kind of guy uh, to do that. So uh, we might be stuck with him. Simultaneously, we're seeing a very weakened political figure, too weak to govern and too strong to resign. Rick Perlstein, he wrote about Rahm Emanuel for TheNewYorker.com. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, John. Be well. One year ago, on January 7th, 2015, two gunmen attacked the offices of the French satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo. They killed 12 men and women, and they called one man by name, Charb. That was the pen name of Stéphane Charbonnier, editor-in-chief of Charlie Hebdo. He was a famous cartoonist and an outspoken critic 
of religious fundamentalism. He'd gotten many death threats. It seemed that day that Sharb's enemies had finally succeeded in silencing him. But in a twist of fate that he would have loved, it was soon revealed that he had finished a book just two days before his murder, and that the book took up the issues at the heart of the attacks, blasphemy, Islamophobia, and the role of satire in the world. Sharb's book is being published today on the first anniversary of the attack. The English edition opens with a foreword by Adam Gopnik. Of course, he's written for The New Yorker for many years about many things, including France. He spent five years in Paris in the 90s. His Paris journals for the magazine are are memorable. I've never forgotten the one about looking for an American-style gym there. His reports were eventually published in the book Paris to the Moon. Adam Gopnik, welcome to the program. It's wonderful to be here, John. We're also joined once again by Amy Wilentz, journalist, novelist, writer, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, longtime contributing editor at The Nation, and author most recently of the book, Farewell, Fred, Voodoo, A Letter from Haiti. Amy, thanks for coming in. Thanks, John. Well, Amy, uh, Sharb opens his book with a series of one-line statements addressed directly to the reader. What are your favorites? Well, I love that this is his version of Dear Reader. It's not exactly charming. I'll read you some. If you think criticizing religion is an expression of racism, if you think it's okay to make fun of everything except what is sacred to you, if you think humor is incompatible with Islam, if you think a cartoon is more dangerous than an American drone, if you think Muslims have no sense of humor or irony, If you think defending Islam is the best way to defend Muslims, if you think the Quran forbids drawing the Prophet Muhammad, if you think a caricature of a jihadist looking ridiculous is an insult to Islam, if you think Islamophobia is the counterpart of anti-Semitism, if you think every ethnic group should have its own anti-racism association, if you think the Zionists who run the world have paid a stooge to write this book, well... Happy reading, because this letter is for you. It's the opening pages of Sharb's open letter on blasphemy, Islamophobia, and the true enemies of free expression. Uh, Adam, to the to the ignorant American, the cartoons in Charlie Hebdo look crude and aggressive and, frankly, offensive, far beyond, I don't know, Mad Magazine. Uh, you are an expert on the history of caricature and cartooning, where does Charlie Hebdo fit into this history? Is there something especially French about it? I I think there is, John. I should say, I'm not exactly an expert on it. I wrote a PhD thesis on it, which I think makes you the opposite of an expert, (laughs) right? When you did it, which I never finished. But I think that it is certainly true that if you look at the history of cartooning in France, particularly in the 19th century, you'll see that a very... uh, uh, scabrous, indignant, uh, overcharged form of cartooning was often the most powerful weapon in the arsenal of the anti-authoritarian forces, particularly the forces of the left that existed. The name of Daumier, for instance, is one that I think still rings for most people. And Daumier was politically engaged in a war with the uh, authority of his time. And uh, he gave a kind of uh, moral authority to cartooning, even very raw and at, at times shocking cartooning, to France that uh, largely vanished in America. I've compared it in the past, and I think it's a fair comparison, 
to the kind of license we give, perhaps not so much to Mad Magazine, but to the creators of South Park. Uh, we understand that South Park, though it may push our edges uh, a little far, has a kind of uh, anarchic authority that we love. And we don't confuse South Park's uh, satire of Mormonism, for instance, with a real uh, attack on the people of Utah any more than I think most French uh, uh, readers of Charlie Hebdo imagined it to be in any sense an, uh, an assault on the well-being of the people at caricature. Sharp begins his uh, open letter with a critique of the concept of Islamophobia. Obviously, the term was created at parallel to uh, homophobia. Sharp says the term Islamophobia, he calls it ignorant, lazy, and erroneous. He says what we really mean is racism, hostility to people uh, because of their dark skin, not uh, hostility to a religion. What's his argument here, and do you think he's right about this? Well, I think he's completely right, and I think it's the core, the crux of the whole, of the whole issue. What Charb is saying, and saying, I might add, with enormous um, calm and equipoise and reasonable um, uh, affect is that it's one thing to be threatening the lives or the well-being of a particular group of people, whether it's Jews or Muslims or Mormons or whomever. And it's another thing to be submitting their ideology or an ideology, whatever it is, to harsh scrutiny. Uh, and he makes a nice analogy with communism. He says nobody feels that communism should be outside or the doctrines of the Communist Party should be outside the balance of criticism. But that's not the same and not even remotely similar to saying that members of the Communist Party should be persecuted. One of the ironies of it, of course, is that he's speaking from a, a left perspective. He's sympathetic to communism, but he recognizes that it has to be criticized. It has a right to be satirized and mocked. Uh, and in the same way that the ideologies of Judaism, Islam, Christianity, all, all are susceptible to satire. And that has nothing to do with threatening the lives of or even the well-being of the people who participate in those, in those ideologies. Right. But the problem with the argument is that what the left will say and has said, as, as Sharp points out, is that it's so offensive to people, even when they're not participants in jihadism, that they can't see beyond these kind of crude caricatures to the fact that it's criticizing an idea and a, um, a violent ideology and not their religion and themselves. I th and I think that's true in part, although what I love about Sharb is he's constantly on the case of people who think that Muslims can't think for themselves. Right. Well, I think it is true that it's – let's not kid ourselves. It is criticizing their religion. It's criticizing the, the beliefs the, in to Sharp's mind, to my mind, the absurd and authoritarian and often oppressive beliefs of uh, extremist or even mainstream uh, Islamic ideology exactly in the same way that you could criticize – you should criticize, again, to my view uh, – the authoritarian and bigoted and cruel doctrines of the Old Testament – without ever for a moment confusing that with animus against individual Jews. The animus, the satire, is always directed not at helpless individual French emigre Muslims, but always at fanatic imams and at uh, the leaders of the religion, not at its uh, uh, followers. Then you miss the point. And if you miss the, the anarchic, joyous, satiric overcharge, which is directed 
every bit as much in the history of Charlie Hebdo at uh, at Christians, certainly, as it ever has been at Muslims, then I think, again, you're missing the point. Uh, uh, I think that we can distinguish between uh, cartoons that make fun of religious ideologies and cartoons that make fun of helpless people, just as we distinguish between statements, utterances that uh, criticize religious ideologies and threat and those that threaten uh, helpless people. I don't think it's that difficult a distinction to make. Charlie Hebdo was and is a humor magazine, and Sharp in his book talks about uh, the jokes and getting the jokes. One of the most interesting is the joke uh, about respecting the carrot. Amy, I know you've been thinking about this one. He He makes a lot of analogies in the book. I'll just read you a little bit of this. If tomorrow some terrorist claiming to be a Buddhist wreaks havoc on the planet, we will be asked, above all, not to portray the instigators of such violence for fear of stirring up the fury of Buddhists the world over. And if the next day a vegetarian terrorist threatens to kill anyone who dares assert that our taste buds delight in meat, we will be required to respect the carrot just as we are required to respect the brotherhood of prophets of the three monotheistic religions. I was just thinking as you were talking that if he hadn't been a cartoonist, but he had been a writer, he wouldn't be dead today. But the power of those images is so enormous that uh, people react in much more violent ways than they might to a writer, although we do have the case of Salman Rushdie. Uh, but I think that we should all remember to respect the carrot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's true, Amy. And one of the bitter ironies of this whole horrible story is exactly that people have been saying for years that we live in a, a society that's so saturated with imagery that no one image can any longer have power. Uh, this certainly not does not seem to be the truth. Right. One of uh, the most revealing arguments in Sharp's book that says a lot about his politics is his discussion of a, a ceremony in 2014 when France's socialist president, Francois Hollande, went to the Grand Mosque of Paris to inaugurate a memorial honoring Muslim soldiers who died for France in World War I. He's passionate about about this. He says they did not die for France. They died because of France. They were victims. In front of them, German bullets. Behind them, French bayonets. I think this, this says a lot about where Sharb stands in French politics. Yes, well, he's supremely anti-nationalist, right? And hates that about Hollande, the kind of craven bowing before any uh, group. He's also supremely anti-war. And I think even those of us who are anti-war in an American context uh, still have a hard time understanding the kind of uh, pit-of-the-stomach revulsion that those on the libertarian, anarchist left in France still feel for the legacy of World War I, just as you were saying, John, this huge loss and slaughter of millions of lives uh, in the name of nationalist pieties that uh, have no, uh, not only no relevance, but in a certain sense, no moral existence. And so I think that that's very much part of where he, where he's coming from. And Sharp's other central value, I think, is atheism. Yeah, the whole end of the book is kind of a defense of atheism and, and a discussion of what he calls atheophobia. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's true. The battle between uh, the church 
particularly between religious authority and uh, and atheism, humanism, uh, has been such a bitter one, was such a bitter one for so many uh, decades and centuries in France. You remember that Voltaire ended all of his letters with the cryptic annotation, meaning shorthand for crush the infamous thing, by which he meant uh, the Roman Catholic Church and religious fanaticism in general. So there's this deep connection between the Enlightenment and atheism, uh, which has just a strong reaction. And there's something, at least for me, uh, terribly uh, stirring and moving in the way that Charb lands on this point so courageously. He's not apologetic for his own atheism, and he feels that if we're going to criticize uh, the cartoonist of Charlie Hebdo for being unduly uh, harsh on Islam, shouldn't we criticize those who are unduly phobic about atheists in the same way? It's a nice turn of argument and one more of the many ironies that he's conscious of. Sharp talks several times in his manifesto about Charlie Hebdo's campaign against a vicious anti-Muslim film called The Innocence of Muslims that was released in 2012. It didn't really have much of an existence here in, in the U.S., but it was a big deal in France. And according to the New York Times, it depicts the prophet Muhammad as a homosexual, a buffoon, a child molester, and a greedy, bloodthirsty thug. There's a Charlie Hebdo cartoon about this, which shows an ugly, naked Muhammad uh, uh, on his hands and knees with his ass in the air, inviting anal sex. And he says to a man filming him, do you like my ass? Now, it turns out it took me quite a while to figure this out, but this means something very specific. The line, do you like my ass, is from a French movie. It's said by Brigitte Bardot in the movie Contempt from 1963, directed by Jean-Luc Godard. It's, it's a brilliant reference playing with the campaign by racists to make a film about Muhammad. But Americans certainly wouldn't get this, and it took me a long time to decode it. And I wonder if French Muslims would, would get it either, uh, or whether they saw the cartoon in Charlie Hebdo as anything other than uh, than horribly offensive. Amy, I know you've been thinking about this kind of criticism of Charlie Hebdo. Oh, John, John, John. Certainly Adam got that right away. <laughs> um, okay. uh, and, and the assumption that, that France's Muslims have never seen a film with Brigitte Bardot by Jean-Luc Godard is going a bit far, as Charb will tell you. He says... <clears throat> He says, it's time to put an end to the revolting paternalism of the white middle-class leftist intellectual trying to coexist with these poor, subliterate wretches, that is, Muslims. I'm educated, the liberal leftist says. Obviously, I get that Charlie Hebdo is a humor newspaper because, first, I'm very intelligent, and second, it's my culture. But you Muslims, well... You haven't quite mastered nuanced thinking yet, so I'll express my solidarity with you by fulminating against Islamophobic cartoons and pretending not to understand them. I will lower myself to your level to show you that I like you. That's you, John. (laughs) I guess that is me, at least sort of. I really don't know whether Muslim immigrants in France know Godard's films from more than 50 years ago. 
the one that, uh, in the example, Charlie Hebdo but was referring to. basically, Sharp doesn't care. They don't care whether everybody recognizes it, some people recognize it. They're trying to make their point. Yeah, I, I understand that. And I'm part of that culture of Sharp. I saw the Godard films. I remember them. This is our culture from our youth, but I can certainly imagine that young Muslims today don't care about the culture of our youth. They have their own culture, their own Godards, and they're not really interested in ours, and therefore they might not get the cartoon. They might be offended by the cartoon. Well, and most of all, they might read John Wiener's piece explaining the roots of the cartoon and still be offended by the cartoon. You know, one of the striking things about this book is that we are reading it in in uh, a, a context that's doubly removed from the one he was writing in. Of course, he was killed two days after he wrote the open letter, which is being published uh, this week. Amy, what was it like for you to read Sharb in the aftermath of the most recent Paris attacks? Well, it was doubly moving, and uh, it seemed apt, and it also, for me, it it brought me back to that feeling that I had originally, that Sharb is my uh, my brother and my colleague as a journalist and a truth-sayer, and that he was speaking of and predicting uh, the future if we just, you know, respect the carrot, basically, if we just lie down prone in front of this. But yet reactions have been very bizarre and nationalistic, and I wish that Sharb were still around to respond to uh, to François Hollande and what happened after the, uh, the state of emergency that was declared after the attacks. Adam. I agree entirely with Amy that the loss of the, the staff of Charlie Hebdo is a very real one, not just Sharb, but Walensky, too, is another example of that combination of um, let's call it kind of scabrous, proud, atheistic, humanistic fervor with genuine wit and uh, a sense of the comic. Uh, that, that's an enormous loss. And the response, and I here again, I agree with Amy, uh, the warlike response, the insistence that the only response to terrorism is war is one that we in the United States have learned to our enormous cost is folly. Is folly, and I think Amy's right that Charb would have been uh, the first to simultaneously denounce uh, fanaticism and see that folly of war. One more thing, Amy, you have organized a conference to coincide as nearly as possible with the one-year anniversary of the attacks on Charlie Hebdo. That's right. I'm uh, running a conference along with co-sponsors USC and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others, at UCI, University of California, Irvine, January 22nd through 23rd, and then another day at USC on the 24th. On the 23rd, we're going to have Edward Snowden uh, and many, many other really fascinating people and talk about many of the issues we've talked about today. We're going to have a panelist of cartoonists on opening evening. And uh, you can go to UCI's website and look for Freedom of Expression on there, and you will find our conference. Amy Wilentz, journalist, novelist, writer, longtime contributing editor at The Nation, thank you. And Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker, who wrote the foreword to the open letter on blasphemy in Islamophobia by Sharb, 
the editor-in-chief of Charlie Hebdo, who was killed one year ago today. Thank you. Thank you, John. Now it's time for Dalpo Radio, reports from the remote regions of Nepal. For that, we turn to Rebecca Solnit, writer, historian, and activist. She's the author of, I think it's 16 books about the environment, landscape, community, art, and politics. She wrote the book on mansplaining. It's called Men Explain Things to Me. She also wrote Hope in the Dark, which I think about almost every day. And her most recent book, I think, is The Encyclopedia of Trouble and Spaciousness. We reached her today at home in San Francisco. Rebecca Solnit, welcome. Lovely to talk to you, John. Dolpo is a region of Nepal on the border of Tibet. You went there. What's it like for the people who live in Dolpo? On the one hand, it's the part of the Tibetan plateau where Tibetan Buddhism was not invaded by China, and so it's a place where people are leading their traditional lives spiritually as well as practically. It's a place with very few roads, none uh, except for the last few miles that I traveled on for more than three weeks, and so people still still conduct their lives the way that they have for Hundreds of years, travel is on foot or by yak, and horse uh, agricultural work is done by hand and with yaks pulling plows. Uh, There's a little bit of solar, but I met an extraordinary woman who, with solar on her roof in one of the remote towns, and I said, what did you have before you got a solar panel seven years ago? The solar panel that ran one tiny little flickering fluorescent uh, tube. And she pulled out a butter lamp, and I had sort of thought that, well, maybe they had kerosene before. So it's this amazing trip into a world where fossil fuels are not part of daily life the way they are in almost every place else, and in which traditional culture is being carried on, but also a place where climate change is having an ugly impact, poverty is huge, and there's very little medical care. You've written a lot about walking. Your books include Wanderlust, A History of Walking, and A Field Guide to Getting Lost. What what kind of trip was this? Was this a, a hike, hiking in the Himalayas? It was, a, it was a triple trek. It was literally the kind of trek people go on in the Himalayas where you're on foot for an extended period. Uh, it was a Buddhist pilgrimage led by Roshi Joan uh, Halifax, a sort of important Buddhist leader out of the West, and it was a medical mission. We had a doctor and about six nurses, some other medical practitioners, including a traditional Tibetan medicine, traditional Tibetan medicine practitioner called an Amchi with us, and we treated uh, several hundred people in this place. Well, let's talk about these one at a time. The hiking part, uh, pretty high altitude there. How, were you prepared for high altitudes? Do you get altitude sickness? I have never had altitude sickness. Fortunately, some other people did. But, you know, above about 15,000 feet, the air is just so damn thin that I can walk level uh, ground or downhill or hang out and feel just fine. And the minute I start going uphill, I start panting for air. The air is really thin up there. And we were above 13,000 feet for or most of the trip after the first few days. And this was a, a, a trip to provide medical care, a, a 
group called the Nomads Clinic. What, what kind of medical care can you provide uh, in the remote regions of Nepal? This is a place where there are no hospitals, where surgery is impossible. You've had to carry, you carried medical supplies. What did you carry and, and what did you do when, when you set up a clinic? We had uh, 50 mules with us, several of which were carrying duffels full of medical equipment, including tools like uh, clamps and scissors and scalpels and um, stuff for looking into eyes and ears and throats, stethoscopes, but also antibiotics, prenatal vitamins, deworming pills for the uh, getting for the kids with worms, which are epidemic there. Um, you know, all kinds of disinfectants and a lot, there are a lot of equipment for wound care and bandages and um, speculums, baby bottles, rehydrating salts, you name it. And it really was a bit like a first aid clinic in that you couldn't send somebody out for an x-ray or, you know, major blood work, but we saw a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff that could be taken care of to some extent, as well as things that couldn't be. And a few lives were saved, and a lot of people had their health improved. And you said this was also a Buddhist pilgrimage uh, led by an amazing person named Joan Halifax. Tell us about Joan Halifax. Oh, Roshi Joan is just this extraordinary, charismatic woman, now 73, who has managed to kind of walk through American history uh, from being in the civil rights movement in the early 60s as a young woman from the South trying to get, trying to get into the bigger world to being an assistant to Alan Lomax, the great musicologist, to being in Paris in 68 when during the uprising and then going to Algeria and meeting up with Black Panthers in exile and studying with some of the major Buddhist teachers who came to the West. And she is now the head of the Upaya Center, a Buddhist center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and an important teacher who's really focused particularly on working with death and dying and how do you support those people? What kind of a journey can it be? What do you, you know, um, what do you learn uh, at those passages in life, you know, when it's happening to you or when you're working with those people, and et cetera. And she's also a very fun, freewheeling, um, very much 1970s kind of figure, I'd say, as well as somebody who's deeply versed in Buddhism and deeply insightful. She's been going to Nepal for about 35 years, and she really loves the people and the culture, so she keeps coming back. And the Nomads Clinic, she organizes a way of trying to give something back. You met some amazing uh, Tibetans. You you wrote about Pasang Lamu Sherpa. Uh, tell us about Pasang. Pasang is this wonderful woman from the Sherpa ethnic group who grew up on the edge of Mount, uh, the sort of gateway to Mount Everest, and as a little girl vowed that she would climb the mountain. And then... Um, you know, went about the complicated process of becoming a mountaineer, complicated because it wasn't really supposed to be a path open to women like her. She was just supposed to get married and have babies and stay home. And she's become this very charismatic feminist uh, who's done remarkable things as a mountaineer, uh, including being one of the first three Nepali women to climb K2 
probably the toughest mountain in the world, a little bit lower than Everest, but with much nastier conditions, as well as Everest, which she managed to summit on while being pretty severely injured and um, and limping her way to the top and not thinking that that was a big deal. And um, But then when the huge earthquake hit Nepal in April of last year, she and her husband, Tora Akita, became the core of an incredible disaster relief group funded by Roshi Joan Halifax, who uh, raised a quarter million dollars and managed to funnel it to them in Nepal. And she really, you know, came into her own as somebody uh, organizing and leading and managing and maintaining order, um, you know, over these expeditions, which became huge. At one point, they were bringing 40 tons of rice in, you know, several gigantic trucks. Another time, she uh, came up with funding to hire 300 men as porters to bring supplies into their own village, isolated by a landslide from the earthquake, which was a way to give them some kind of income and actually get the supplies into this place. And so she's this very commanding figure and this beautiful young woman who I think has a big future, maybe beyond mountaineering, and who it was just a joy to travel with for those three and a half weeks. We need to talk about how climate change is affecting uh, the Dolpo side of the Himalayas. Well, Dolpo is part of the Tibetan Plateau. The Tibetan Plateau is where snow and ice and glaciers have locked up huge amounts of water that flows year-round as some of the major rivers of of Asia, the Yellow River, the Yangtze, the Ganges, and the Mekong, among others. 1.5 billion human beings depend on that water, and climate change is undermining the stability of the supply. It will affect people as far downstream as uh, Vietnam and Bangladesh. But right there upstream, you you know, the, when we were there, they said they had a 40% lower barley harvest than normal, that the weather was screwy. And you were walking through these places that were so arid, nothing grew in them. And there was this fresh, clear, cold water running through it. And, you know, that water is going to fail, and it's going to make the place uninhabitable or seasonally inhabitable. And it's a particular tragedy when it happens to people who never even have used fossil fuels. They've never industrialized. They never burned coal. They never drove cars. They have a couple hydroelectric plants um, in the lowlands, but they're basically not even electrical consumers. They don't have, you know, their carbon footprints are probably smaller than their you know, they're yaks of prints, and uh, yet they're the kind of people who are being hit hardest with the impacts from the industrialized world, and that's kind of heartbreaking. Rebecca Solnit, she wrote about her trip to Nepal for The New Yorker. Rebecca, thanks for doing Dolpo Radio with us today. You're welcome, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Oriano at Emerson College in Los Angeles, which offers a range of courses from social media marketing to TV writing. Find out more at emerson.edu. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. 
Our theme music is Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on iTunes or at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.